Today we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the first 14 verses. And instead of just reading that to you today straight through, I'm going to give a summary, a pretty in-depth summary of what's going on here. Then we'll look at a couple of things that apply to us, and then a little vision casting at the end as we spend this day celebrating what God's doing here at Perimeter Road. And if you're taking notes at the top, you just want to write this, have you been made clean? Because that's the question. That's the focus today. Have you been made clean? And in this story here in 2 Kings, the Old Testament, chapter 5, we see a man named Naaman. And Naaman has a great resume. So let's look at his resume just for a minute. He's a great commander of the Syrian army. And the Syrian army did some serious damage back in this time. One of those places they did damage was the land of Israel. And he was a commander during this time. And he was a great man in the eyes of his master. And so who was his master? As we see in the first verse in chapter 5, it was the king of Syria. So he is in good position with the king. He is a great commander, and he has received high favor from the king because of the raid that he led in Israel, the battle over Israel. Now, why was Israel defeated? We thought that Israel, aren't they God's people? Shouldn't he protect them at all times? Shouldn't he make sure nothing bad happens to them? Because after all, I mean, nothing should, bad should happen to God's people, right? But they were disobedient. They continued to turn their backs on God, and so this was a form of discipline where God would let loose another nation against his chosen nation at the time to do damage. And they did. They did great damage to Israel and to King Ahab, and he was killed. He received great prestige as a mighty man of valor, Naaman did. And when we think of men of valor, we think of our own military men, women and what they face, what they conquer. So if we were to ask Naaman in this time, say, hey, give us three words to describe yourself. I believe he'd probably say these three words, that he was a leader, he was loyal, and he was courageous. And I think for every man in this room, we want that type of resume, a leader who's loyal, who's courageous. He led his people, he led his men to battle, and he was loyal to those men. But he was also loyal to his king, and he was courageous. He was bold. In fact, it's just legend, hasn't been confirmed, but it's thought that he's the one that pulled back the bow and released the arrow that struck King Ahab and killed him on the battlefield. If you were to ask him, hey, are these the only things in which you would describe yourself? He said, well, I think I can describe myself in a couple more ways. Strong, successful. You want me to keep going? I mean... Naaman's a powerful man, well-known, well-respected. And as we read, we, we see these things right off, the, right off the cuff, and we go, wow, that's the kind of man I want to be. And I'm sure that many looked to Naaman and said, hey, I want to grow up to be just like him. The Scripture shows us something. He was a mighty man of valor, but he had leprosy. Now, to be so prestigious such a strong leader, so successful, but yet have something as leprosy, his body was decaying from the outside. In fact, he could lose thumbs, he could lose toes, he could lose body parts due to leprosy. He had great accolades, accolades, great accolades, but a grave ailment. He had defeated thousands 
on the battlefield. Thousands of foes, but this one foe, he cannot destroy. He cannot be. This domination of sin on his life, because it's on this earth, is causing this sickness, and it has a hold of him. So, a great man, a leader, loyal, successful, strong, well-known, but with leprosy. Which, thankful, in the culture that he's in, it did not make him an outcast. If you were a Jew in that culture, especially as we see in first century, lepers were outcast. They had no friends. Their family had to abandon them. They had to set them apart. But yet for this man, he's a mighty leader, but yet he's dying. He's in serious trouble. And it's only through God's grace. Can we get just a clear picture here of God's grace in this moment? God being glorified. God places a little girl in his path. Not only in his path, but in his home. This little girl is from Israel. And it was Naaman who led this raid into Israel. It could have been Naaman himself that struck her father dead. That maybe even killed her mother. Because we don't hear of mom or dad in the scene. We don't hear of any other siblings They defeated Israel, and they brought her with them. He brought her to his house that she could be his slave. She could be there underneath the guidance of his wife. So here she is in the home. Every day she has to see the man that killed her family, that took over her land, that captured her and brought her to a foreign place. If in our flesh we want to justify this girl, we could say that she should be mad. She should keep silent with the information that she's about to let loose. She would be justified in that because of all that's happened to her. And that's how we tend to respond many times when things happen to us. We have vengeance in our hearts. We see God's grace override. She has compassion on Naaman. And she said to Naaman's wife, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So we see no heart of vengeance, but of compassion and forgiveness. This young girl, to this mighty man, she has the cure. She can tell him where to go. She can hold it to herself, or she can tell him. And it's through God's grace that she gives him this information. You see, our sinful flesh is not programmed to display this type of compassion. No. And the flesh, she would be justified to silently root for his destruction. Just keep her mouth shut, not telling where he could go, and seeing die a slow death. Yeah, that would be vengeance. That would be payback. That would be the ultimate reward for her. But no, we see that she's not acting out in the flesh. Instead, by the grace of God, she wants to see him healed, and she knows where to send him. Naaman is given this information, and he went to the king of Syria and informed him of the prophet in Israel. And the king quickly writes him a recommendation letter. He says, Naaman, I got you covered. After all that you've done, man, you tell me what to write. I will write it 
Man, I'll put down your accolades. Here, here you go. You take this with you. You let me know if you have any problems. So he has this great recommendation letter. But not only that, he carries with him lots of money, lots of precious possessions. Because he's a powerful man. So powerful man thinking, hey, I'll bring this recommendation letter from the king, and then I bring thousands upon thousands of dollars, what it would equate to today, with me. I have the money. I have the success. I have the prestige. I'm going to be taken care of. And in verse 6, it says, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Nahum and my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel gets all upset. I mean, he tears his clothes. I mean, he begins to cry. He's thinking, I'm, I'm dead meat. I, I can't do anything for this man. I cannot heal you of your leprosy. Why are you on my doorstep? So obviously this news traveled fast because it got to Elisha. So the problem was that Naaman shows up at the wrong doorstep. But he thought he was going to the one who had the highest authority in the land. Why not go to the king? Obviously, king of Syria had authority. When I go to the king of Israel, he is the one that I need to see for my healing. All because he carried the title of king. But this king of Israel was powerless to heal Naaman of his leprosy. And much less his hardened heart towards his creator. He could do no inward change. He could do no outward change. He was only a king that the people called upon. And so... When he read the letter, he tears his clothes, and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He's saying, this is a trap. He set me up. What is this? What did I have done wrong? But Elijah hears the king's desperation. And when he heard the king's response, he sent to the king, he says, Why have you torn your clothes I just like to think of it as Elijah's going, why? why? Think. Put your trust in the Lord. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So we see that a prophet can do something that a king can't. And there's something special about this prophet. So Naaman comes to Elisha with horses and chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, here's probably what he's expecting. He's expecting Elisha to open the door. Maybe say, welcome. So nice to meet you, Naaman. So glad you're here. I'm a prophet of the Lord, but I have nothing uh, compared to you and all your accolades. You're you're great, but thank you for being here. I want to help you right away. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to wave my hand over you, and I'm going to say some blessings. And then we're going to kind of dance around. It's going to be all great. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're healed of your leprosy. That's what's going to happen. But that's not what happens. In fact, knocks on the door, coming with all of his money, all of his chariots, all of his power, and Elisha stays in the back of the house and sends to him a servant. Doesn't even come to the door. And the servant tells Naaman, he says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Then your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. 
Now, ladies, it is true that we men have selective hearing. Okay. I admit that. Sorry, guys, but it's the truth. And in this situation, Naaman has selective hearing. The only thing he hears is wash seven times the Jordan River. That's all he hears. And in fact, he's probably ticked off because when he opens the door, there's a servant, and the prophet couldn't even come talk to him. He's probably filled with pride at this moment. And he's thinking, wash in the Jordan. But he doesn't hear the last part, that when he washes in the Jordan, then your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. He only hears what he wants to hear. He's prideful. Naaman is angered by Elisha's remedy. In fact, he's angered and he goes away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. This is not what I expected. This is not what I had planned when I came all this way for healing. And now he says, go wash seven times in the Jordan. I mean, it's, it's too easy. It just seems like a waste. But not only that, he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? I'm not getting in that river. It stinks. I wouldn't even drink from that river. I'm not going to wash in the river. I'm not going to do that. And seven times, you can forget it. It's, come on, man, let's go. And notice again, God's grace. The servant. See three servants throughout this story. See the servant girl who says, hey, I know where you should go. You see a servant who shows up at the door and says, hey, word from the prophet. Go wash seven times. Be healed, be clean. And now we see his own servants. They say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, stop, stop. Did you hear what he said? Get past the thought of going into the river. And they have great respect for him. Listen how they call upon him. They say, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? I mean, after all, isn't that we came? Wash, be clean. No more leprosy. Isn't that what you want? So we don't know the time frame between when he hears that, when he changes his mind, but he decides to go into the Jordan. And now I'm not going to get into specifics of the seven times and why the number seven and all of that. But for seven times, he's dipped into the Jordan and he comes out. Soaking wet the first time, looking around, probably feeling a little bit of humiliation at the beginning. Goes back again, dips into the water, comes back out. Everybody's kind of watching but it's not until the seventh time, until he follows the full command here, that he's healed. And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Now, I'm going to stop there. I encourage you that this week what you will do is you will read further beyond verse 14 to see the change in his life. Because Naaman says, you know what, I, I want to take some dirt from here. I'm so excited. I mean, in fact, his, his flesh was restored like a baby's. It was perfect. No more blemish on the outside. 
completely healed. Brand new. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, we're going to go somewhere with this. But then he says, can I take some of this dirt? Let me take two loads. Let me just take this dirt. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to set up worship. But see, it wasn't that land that saved him. It wasn't that true water that saved him. There was something greater that was happening here that cured his flesh. It was God and his grace. He says, I'll worship the Lord. And then he presents this interesting request. He says, hey, every day I've got to go into the house of Rimen with my master, the king, and I've got to stand there with him. And when he goes, he's going to, I have to bow with him, but just can you pardon me that when I'm bowing, I'm not bowing to this false God because I want to worship the Lord. And Elijah says, go in peace. You, know, you, can, you can do some further study on that, but I want us to really focus in here on four things. One, we see that there's a good man with a bad problem. A good man with a bad problem. Now, if you're here long enough, you'll say, Brian, that sounds contradictory to how you normally refer to us. You say we were not good. You say it yourself is not good. And I'm right. We're not good. We're not good in and of ourselves. But I use this kind of in quotations, a good man, because he was viewed as a good man before people. People viewed him as a really good man, a leader who was courageous, who was strong, who was successful. But he had this leprosy due to sin. Sin brings forth death. Sin brings forth sickness. Sin sin brings forth pain and separation. That's why we have these things. Not just because he committed some certain sin. That's not the point. It's because of the sin from the very beginning, because of Adam and Eve and how they rebelled against God and how it changed the way we live here on this earth and their sickness. So he has this leprosy because of sin. And he's lost due to his sin. He doesn't worship the Lord. doesn't even know the Lord before he encounters Elisha. But he is a picture of all of us. Of all of us in this room. This man Naaman is a picture of us. No matter how great or small, we all share a bad problem. And that's sin. Sin that causes us to think that we're better than what we are. We boast in our accolades. We think that if we can achieve enough things here on this earth that We're in good standing. Good men with bad problems. But number two, we see a small servant with a great solution. This girl, again, she could have kept her mouth shut, and she doesn't. She says, go see Elisha. Men, you see such compassion here? Something different about her than Naaman. Reminds us of a greater servant. His name is Jesus. He came in the form of a servant. See, Jesus did not have a body before he came to earth. When we were made in the image of God, it's not that we took on his physical characteristics, but in spirit form and and who God is, we were made in his image. But yet Jesus Christ took on a physical character appearance when he came here born as a baby through a virgin and he was perfect he he never sinned he he modeled for us perfection he could uphold the law and he did he did even when others thought he was breaking the law he upheld the law to perfection so that he could go and die for the ones who had broken the law 
so that you placing your faith in the sacrifice of what He has done on the cross can be assured that His blood covers all of your sin. He came as a great servant. Philippians 2, 5-7 through Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Wow, how we can learn from Jesus. That though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, if there's anything in this world that you would want to hang on to, it's that, hey, I have equality with God. And Jesus puts that aside, and He comes as a humble servant. Bringing the cure. He is the cure Himself. So in this picture, in 2 Kings chapter 5, this humble servant girl, all these servants that we see in this story is a great foreshadowing of the servant to come. He comes, he humbles himself, he takes on our flesh. And you say, that's not so bad. It's not so bad, he becomes one of us. But when you see this world through God's eyes, and just how rebellious man is, and Jesus becomes like us in the flesh, that's humility. Number three, an unfavorable remedy, and then an angry response. As we see Naaman, he says, the Jordan, really? I have great power and money, and you want me to wash in the river. So he thought his money could provide him healing. A lot of times we want to bring stuff to the table. And we say, God, this is what I bring to you. I think you should heal me. I think I deserve this salvation. And, and that's what we say sometimes. I mean, we, we say this in, in a couple ways. One, we say it when we give a testimony and we say, well, I, I really wasn't that bad. Um, or, you know, I don't really have a good testimony to tell. Um, I don't really have all the, you know, sex, drug, alcohol stuff to tell. And so my, my testimony's lame, okay? I don't have cool stories to tell. We're so backwards in that. No, our testimony's great because of Jesus, amen? I mean, Jesus makes our testimony great. So if you ever come stand up on the stage and you say, I don't have a good testimony to tell, I, I'm just going to shout out, can you tell us about Jesus? Because if you tell us about Jesus, you got a good testimony to tell. In fact, you can save all of that stuff that happened to you in the past. I mean, just kind of summarize it. Just say, my life was bad, but Jesus, hey, amen, here we go. I can relate. See, see I really wasn't that bad. See, that's where you're wrong. No, you and I, awfully bad, awfully bad. The very fact that we thought we were good without God just shows how wicked we are. You say, oh, but, but mom told me I was good, and community tells me I'm good. No, 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 no. You're wicked. I'm wicked. I'm going to remind you of that often. You may be sick and tired of hearing that. You, you want me to tell you some nice, pleasant stories. Let me tell you something. We're wicked people deserving of an eternal lake of fire. And to that I say amen. To God be the glory. His praise. That is our default. That's where we need to go. God could send all of us to hell. He is just in doing that. But he sends us his son, a humble servant. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing at all. Nothing in you wants God. That's why Jesus came. If there was something in us that wanted God and that we could get to God, there would be another method. But God knows there's nothing in us that wants Him. And so Jesus comes down and provides the way. 
say, Brian, I don't, I don't like this. It's, it's not good for my self-esteem. Exactly. Because your self-esteem needs to be put to death, and we need to have a high view of God. And when we do, all of a sudden, our lives change. We become who we need to be for God's glory. Can I get a silent amen on that one? Okay, I get it. I get it. My waters are better than this. My way's better. I don't need salvation. I have a better solution than yours, Elisha. That's, that's what Naaman's saying. The cross is foolishness to the man that is perishing in his sin. It's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So to those, it's foolishness, but to us, it's the power of God. Do not be ashamed of the cross. And it is the blood that is the only remedy. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there's no other way. There are no other cleansing except the blood of Jesus. You can offer people all types of solutions, but there's only one remedy for man's sin, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only remedy. And so now is not a time for us to be accepting of all world religions. We can be peaceful, but we need to be men and women of conviction. And we definitely don't need to be politically correct on all of this. Hey, well, as long as you believe something, you're good, right? You'll get there. Keep your chin up. How sad is it that we love ourselves so much that we're not willing to speak the truth to other people because we're afraid that they'll disown us. And we know that if they don't follow Christ, their default is hell. And we say, I love them. I, I can't, I'm, I'm afraid. No, you don't, you're loving yourself. If you love them, you'll share the truth with them. That's why we preach a bold message. That's why we can't apologize. That's why we call sin, sin. And we look to the one who is righteous. Number four, we see a humble response provides a mighty healing. He went and washed and was clean. We can be washed and cleaned through the blood of Jesus. There's no other alternative. And if you're here today and you're hearing this and you've not been washed in the blood of Jesus, meaning looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who went to the cross. And if you, if you believe that today and know that it's only by the work on the cross right there that we can get to God, that's the only way through his death and Jesus. Yeah, in one sense, he was murdered. In another sense, he gave his life. Here's how it works. Sovereign God says, I'm going to put you in the midst of an evil people. And you're going to speak the truth, and they're going to hate it, and they're going to crucify you. But you're giving your life. You're not going to call down angels. You're not going to stop them from doing it. You're going to lay down your life. Because this is the only way. This is the only way that man can be saved. If you believe that, and right now, your heart is on fire with this message. And you're going, yes, yes, that's what I need. You don't need to go in any physical waters. No, you need to be covered in the blood of Jesus, putting your full faith in Jesus. Today, you call out and say, this is what I believe. I trust in you. Save me of my sins. I follow you. 
Call out to Him. Make the good confession. That's it. Right there. And for those of us who get this, who have been awakened and we follow Jesus, may you not forget that it is only the blood of Jesus that makes you clean. It should make us like this little servant girl who doesn't walk around bitter because of circumstances, but know that we're willing to point people in the right direction. As she pointed Naaman and said, go to Elisha. We, every day, need to be pointing people to the cross. Go to the cross. Go to the cross and be healed. This is the only way that you can be healed. Maybe you have some bad relationships with people. And you say, I would never share this information with them. I'd rather them die and go to hell. I believe that if God would allow scales to fall from your eyes and you could see hell, you'd take back that statement. That no matter who it is, no matter what they've done to you. I mean, this girl, quite possibly, this is the man who murdered her family, and she's saying, go, be healed. And that we would have heart for the Lord, that no matter what man does to us, we would say, be healed, look to Jesus. Are you a true follower of Christ with this great love to share with others? Have you been made new? And now are you willing to take this message to others maybe made new? So with that, we kind of close the, the message part. I want you to hang on to this message. Because the reason I share this with you, because our mission statement here is purify the church, penetrate the culture. That's kind of catchy. I like it. I, I like it. When Joby came to my office a few years ago and said, I said, that's it. It's just catchy. But you know, more and more as we continue on, uh, I see that everything that we do falls in line with this. That we are looking to continually be purified in Christ that I can't provide this purification for you, I can't touch you and make you clean, but I can preach the gospel. And as you hear this and you respond in repentance and following Him, you can be made clean, pure. And as you come and grow in Christ, you're made pure. And then we go penetrate the culture. There's five areas that I just want to highlight for us because as we're looking at 29 years here, 29 years, what stops us from ceasing to exist? Well, will we be around in 29 more years is the question. That's not automatic. What if 29 years from now people are driving down Perimeter Road, they look at this place and it's abandoned. Grass growing up all around, nothing happening here, dead. That can happen when we keep silent, when we keep to ourselves, when we cease being the church caring for one another, living with a gratitude of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. And so five areas that we need to focus on today that I just want to point out. One, community groups. We have community groups at 9 o'clock. We have community groups at 5 o'clock in the evening. We have some meeting in the morning, some meeting at night. People all the time, they say, so do you guys do small groups or do you use Sunday school? What do you do? I said, we do both. I mean, we just, we do both. 9 o'clock in the morning, you come you get a part of a group, and we're trusting that your leader is actually going to take you into the Bible and teach you, and that you're going to have great fellowship around the Bible. Because we, and teachers in the room, I'm not going to ask you to stand or raise your hand right now, but you're kidding yourself if you think that everybody in the classroom 
knows the Bible. But that we would teach them that when we come together in these community groups, we, we love one another and we encourage one another and we're actually friends. That we say, hey, it's Jesus we have in common. I, I want to give a testimony. The last year in our community group that meets on Sunday evenings, I've seen great change in many of the ones in the room. Ones who had a hard time explaining the gospel a year ago, and now they're saying, I love the gospel. Like, let me tell you what I'm learning. I mean, some of them have started with even looking at, at children's books and saying, hey, wow. Look at this. This is refreshing. Do you know why? Because where they were coming from, they didn't hear the gospel. And all of a sudden, they're just alive. And we gather together, and I love it. And let me just tell you, at 4.30 every Sunday afternoon, there's a battle going on in the Anderson household. Sunday afternoon naps are great. I love those Sunday afternoon naps. And maybe your Sunday morning sleep is good, and you're saying, oh, I don't want to come. Well, you know what? There's times I show up and I just tell them, I say, guys, I didn't want to be here tonight. Just going to tell you. But I'm so glad I'm here now. I mean, maybe if we're just honest with each other, we say, you know what? I was struggling. I wasn't nice to anybody this afternoon in my household. I'm not even pretend. I'm coming here tonight. I need the gospel. I, well, I don't need you. If we pick up the phone and, and you call somebody in your group during the week and say, hey, I need you to pray for me, man. I'm struggling right now. I can't, my eyes... I need to make that covenant that Job made to keep my eyes pure, and I'm struggling to uphold that covenant. Man, I'm, I need prayer. Will you pray for me? I'm thankful for the accountability that has come out of our community groups. I have men texting me, even ones that don't even live here anymore, who are saying, I need prayer right now. Will you pray for me right now? I talked to one just recently. He said, man, I need, I need something. I said, let me ask you something. What's different between now and where you were a year ago? He said, Community of the church. Yesterday, that's what he told me. Community of the church. I need the community. That's why we come together. So if you're not in a community group, look, you're missing it. You are missing it. I I don't need to be friendly with you right now. I'm just telling you, you're missing it. Sunday morning, Sunday night, come join a group. If you're a member here at Perimeter Road, come join in. And then when you get there, if you're going, I thought we were going to study the Bible. Are we not studying the Bible? Let's study the Bible. Tell your teacher that. Say, come on, man, prepare. You come on, you bring it. I'm here. Let's, let's grow in the gospel together. I'm grateful for all of you who teach. I'm grateful for those who take serious these community groups. We need to be honest in our community groups with our sin struggles, the things that we're facing, because we're covering a lot of stuff right now. There's a lot of things that go on. And we cover it up because we're afraid that people will think otherwise of us. Let me tell you something. They got stuff going on too. We need to share in this together so that we continue to grow in Christ. Number two, the faithful preaching and fellowship. I'll be brief on this. We're just not going to apologize for what we preach. Not going to do it. We're going to come with authority of Christ. We're going to stand on this. And it may make you mad at times. And you know what? I think that sometimes the best response when we leave this place is a ticked-off congregation. Seriously. If we look at the Bible... It offends us. And so sometimes I even wonder if we're, we're doing the right job because people are like, man, it was lovely. That was great. And I'm going, wow, man, that, I was a wreck this week. We get it. We appreciate the encouragement. But this constant fellowship coming together, guys, 
It's needed. It's needed. We're lost without it. On Wednesday nights, this is number three, Wednesday nights, look, you know, it, it depends on culture. I know that there's some churches that don't meet on Wednesday nights anymore. We don't meet on Sunday nights. A big reason for that now is because of our community groups on Sunday nights. This is not the whole do not forsake the assemblings of yourselves because you don't come on Wednesday night talk. Not going there. What I'm just telling you is that we've decided on Wednesday nights to pray as a group of people. And for some, right up front, that has not been good enough for you. It hasn't. I mean, by your responses, it just is not good enough. It's not worth the hour investment. So we haven't forsaken that importance. What we've done is we've decided we're going to take doctrine and we're studying the doctrine of God on Wednesday nights. Because I'm convinced that among this group and among Christians around the world, we need to be better acquainted with God. And so the question is, who is God? And I ask you that question today, who is God? And if all you can think and you hit a roadblock and you go, God is good, God is great, and I thank him for my food, we need to go deeper, friend. And so on Wednesday nights, we're looking at the doctrine of God. We're not trying to wow people, okay? We're not trying to convert people into something. What we're wanting to look at is who is God? I mean, let's put God in his right place. And so I invite you to come study with us on Wednesday nights. Maybe it's because of, of work and those who are in the military, those who are at the hospitals, those who serve our community. You, you can't be here for some reason. We put those up on the web too. But I encourage you, come dig in. Come be a part of what we're doing. I believe it. That, this is a favorite part of my week right here. That has become my most favorite part of the week, Wednesday night. That fellowship, that small 70 people that were here last week. Okay, I won't fluff numbers, 65. They were here on Wednesday night, okay? They were here. That was, that, that's it. Like, I, I was so excited going into that Wednesday night. We're talking about God. The doctrine of God, yeah, that's vitally important. Reaching Valdosta in the world. Reaching Valdosta in the world. This happened this weekend as we did 24 hours of care. And with the 24 hours of care, I want to say thank you to Tim Ortmeyer and Kim Ortmeyer. They were leaders in this, and as well as Joe Crow and others. And I'm going to miss some names, and I'm sorry, KT Reeves and others. But I know that's not why you're serving to be called out, but I just want to say thank you for everyone who signed up in the 24-hour time frame for us to go to firehouses and for us to go to police departments and to go to the sheriff's office downtown and to the jail and to go to different places, to schools. I mean, you went and you talked to resource officers and you gave them some goodies and you prayed for them and they're going, thank you. Like somebody notices. I mean, I have to put up with these kids all day long. You know, I have to drop the hammer on them, right? And I need somebody to say thank you. And that's what we did. Maybe you're here today because your life was impacted by that. And we want to say, welcome, we're so glad you're here. But this is why we did it. What you've heard today, this is why we do these things. And that we ought to take this message throughout the world. People ought to know the name of Jesus in this town. I mean, there's 100,000 people here. I learned this this weekend. 100,000 people, 50,000 in the city, 50,000 in the surrounding county area. 100,000. They ought to know the name of Jesus because this group right here is serious about it. That we keep going on mission, penetrating the culture. And lastly, number five, if you're here today and you're looking, you're going, man, this is a big church. Um, look, there are a lot bigger churches out there. And if you're here and you're going, this is a small church, you're right. This is a lot smaller church than churches out there. Look, we're not looking at numbers here and determining our success. We're not trying to become a mega church, okay? Not trying to get real big and bold. I mean, look, there are some places where big churches are necessary. But what I love is we're seeing a shift in our culture right now and in the church to 
not just going smaller, not being exclusive, but preaching a hard gospel message. And what we do up here is not to attract people in so that they'll feel welcome, but that we preach the truth and that we welcome them with the love of Christ. And with this, our goal in the future as we continue to move forward is to plant other churches. We've been here 29 years. What I would love to see in the next 29, 30 years is that we plant multiple churches. And you say, hey, we've got to get bigger for that. No, we do not. No, we do not. Let's not kid ourselves. We don't have to be some big thousand-member church to plant churches. No, we don't. We just need to be a people who love Jesus. And as we take care of these resources, the things that we need to get done around here, and we begin to set aside, we can be a people that plant churches. We need to have confidence in that. And if somebody comes up to you and says, no, man, you're 15 years away, that's hogwash, dude. All right, that's South Georgia talk. That's hogwash, all right? No. Why would we plant churches? Because it's the gospel that changes lives. It's not the next president. It's not the current president. That's not who changes lives. It's not what happened with hearings this week, whatever happens in the news. That's not what changes lives. What changes lives are Christians who love Jesus, carrying the message. That's what's going to change lives. So I did my best to do 25 minutes. I failed at that. I confess that. Okay, here we go. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. And, and Lord, as we have heard this message, Lord, we, we want to be a people that are active. Lord, we thank you. I'm so passionate, so thankful for what Christ has done. Lord, as we look at this Old Testament story and relate it to what Jesus has done, I pray that those in this room that are separated from you due to their sin today are brought close. Lord, that they are awakened to the truth, that they have heard it clearly. They respond in repentance and following you. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for what you're doing. God, what a blessing it is to be a part of it. God, we ask that you continue to work among us now. In Jesus' name, amen.